So over the last few weeks, at the beginning of the new year, I challenged our church to be set their watch each day with an alarm uh, at 10.02. And, and with that goal to, to come alongside Luke 10.2, which says the harvest is abundant. The harvest is plentiful. Uh, um, some versions would say, behold, look, the fields are white unto harvest. They're ready. Therefore, seek or beseech or pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out his laborers, his workers, into the harvest. And so I hope you've been doing that and practicing that and, and, and that it's built up a little bit more than just praying those words. Um, I don't want you to end up just uh, turning into a chant that is meaningless, but I hope it's enriched you and challenged you to look and see the harvest around you in a different way, hopefully filtering it through God's eyes, through God's message, through, through Christ. But I understand also how that can be very big because you can just get questioned like so many people. But then now, here's the, the breaking it down for, to, from one to one. Who is your one that God is laying on your heart? Who is your one in a day? Who is your one in a week? Who is your one in this year? And I, I, and I would challenge you, if you can get to the place where God just show me that one conversation each day, that is awesome. That, that, that is life-changing. But even if it was... An ongoing relationship that you built with someone with the purpose of getting the gospel to them, with the purpose of them knowing the good and awesome message of the Lord. And it takes a year's time. Imagine what that is. That is one more soul in the kingdom. That is one more person connected to Christ. And if they live here and, 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 it, and it affects us, praise the Lord, hallelujah. If it doesn't, it affects some other church and that's great. I, I'm not in competition here. But if it asks us, imagine if every single one of us had a challenge that within a year, I'm going to bring someone to the Lord. I'm going to help be that example, be that gospel message to them and ultimately get them to, to a place of faith, hopefully, that God would use me in such a way. Because I know He's the one that pointed me to that one. But then, not only that, I'm going to help them be discipled. I'm going to get them connected to a church in this church. And if every single one of us did that, we're double the, sanctuary, the, double the size we are today. Like that. Within a year's time, if we committed to that, within a year's time, we're double what's in here right now. Just one. And one matters. So let's make that challenge. I'm going to invite you as you pray, add that to your 1002. God, help me see the harvest as plentiful and show me the one. And when you leave me to that one, let me be effective. And then after that one, send me another one. Send me another one. I think the world could be dramatically transformed in a way if the church lived with that heart and soul. And that's the challenge I want to set before you. This challenge I'm setting before myself, not just in my preacher duties because I'm a pastor. I was having a conversation with my connection group this morning about my ones. Um, and it's in one place, but four different people having a conversation, asking me questions, and me trying to relate to them. And, and, I, and I would ask you to pray for, I'm not going to give their names, but for four, four guys that I, I love talking to them. I love hearing their questions and answering them and, and hopefully getting them to a place where not that I'm trying to seize an opportunity, but a place where they know God loves them. A place where they know His grace and His kindness. A place that they too get redemption from a great Redeemer.
So with all that, that's our challenge as a church, as a people. Today, our challenge as we get into God's Word together. I'm going to invite you to turn into the book of Exodus, chapter 32. Uh, you may say, 32, we were on 21 through 24 last week. Why do we jump ahead to this many chapters to 32? Well, we're going to get there in two more weeks. Uh, chapters 25 through 31 are the talking about how God instructs Moses to build the tabernacle, a place for his presence to be uh, dwelling among his people wherever they may go. And, and they will be going for the next 40 years. God is going to dwell among them. And He's giving them this, this place of worship, this place where His presence will dwell. And some of the people asked last week, well, what is, what is that difference? Because the tabernacle seems very ornate. Some of you that read ahead, and, and I applaud you for reading ahead. That's okay. I don't, that don't, doesn't bother me. I did that in church. And, and as long as you can do that and listen to the pastor's message, I mean, that's a win-win. But... Uh, but the, the tabernacle seems very ornate. And last week we talked about how God said, if you're going to worship me as a people, it should be uncut stones and should be very simple. And you have this ornate thing. And there's a difference. The place where they would worship God individually as people, worship Him, was through a very simple, simple practice. The place where His presence dwelled would be akin to a small version of heaven on earth. It would be like a returning to the Garden of Eden perfection that only holiness could exist within its holy place. There's a difference of what God is doing here among His people, but He is stepping into their place. And, and while Moses is back on the mountain, after receiving the law, he's receiving all of these details about worshiping God in the right way, in a beautiful way, in a bold way, in an awesome way. But then something happens. Isn't that always the way? Something good seems to be going and, and man, we're excited and then something happens. What happens? Well, we get to Exodus 32 and, and you would think that after all this escalation of all this awesome, awesome details about God and His holiness rescuing a people who were considered slaves and their, their way of life was considered as nothing, that they were left for dead at times. Their infants drowned in a river. And God rescues them with a mighty, mighty arm. You know, um, he, he, he just shows up and shows out in a way that is extraordinary. And then them being rescued from that land and delivered through the Red Sea and then provided for in the desert. And then there's this glorious rescue from the, uh, uh, an enemy tribe of people that is seeking to annihilate them. And then there's this account on the, at, at Sinai under the, 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 the scope of this mountain peak full of God's glory on display, and then the audible voice of the Lord giving them these Ten Commandments, you would think that would be enough, right? You would think that would be enough. But it's not. Unless we look back onto the Israelites and say, shame, shame, shame. How stupid, how terrible could they be? How could this happen? Lest we do that and try to applaud ourselves and put us up on our own pedestal, we must realize, uh, I was reading last night in, in, in a devotional with Charles Spurgeon, uh, he was talking about temptation strikes anywhere and strikes anyone. There is no one too holy, no place too quiet or solitude that you will not be tempted. And if you disagree with that, you disagree with Jesus. 
for he is the holiest of holies. And he went to a place of solitude, not of, of, of tempting par, uh, populations with neon lights and, and flashy things. He was in the wilderness and he was tempted. Something great happens and then something else. This is Exodus chapter 32. A very dramatic moment. Very disastrous moment. But nevertheless, a teaching moment. As we read the scripture to see what it says, what it means, and how it applies. And then ultimately what we're going to do about it, I would ask you to stand with me in the honor of God in the reading of His Word that He gifted us. We're going to read the first six verses. If you were following along with the Pew Bible, this is page 75. It will be on the screen behind me. And as always, if you do not have a Bible, those Bibles in the pew are our gift to us, from us to you. And so we ask you to take those if you need one. That's what it says. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us. Because this Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, We don't know what has happened to him. Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took the gold from them, fashioned it into an engraving tool and made it into the image of a calf. And then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to Let's pray. I'm wondering, is that my mic? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for who you are today. There could be many things that would distract us. It even distracts me. Um, But help us to not forget that, that this is something you have given to us, that we might know more about you. We might know more about this life that we're meant to live as your people, as people that have already been rescued, and that we might communicate the gospel that that meets us where we fail. Help us make much of you, Jesus, in this moment. Amen. So, here we have Exodus, the second of the first five books of the Bible, uh, penned by the hand of Moses and some others helped because when Moses died and it records about Moses' death, it kind of needed somebody else to write about Moses' death. Um, but it's authored and inspired and infallible because it came from God and is provided to us. And these first five books, they do tell us the law, the, the expectation for God's redeemed people. Once again, we make note that redemption law is after they have been redeemed, after they have already been rescued and had been saved by God's grace that God holds these expectations to them. He's not holding expectations to people that He has done nothing for and that has not yet known His name. He is calling those who know His name to live according to His Word. 
And it has this law, but it also has the narrative about who they were, where, where did they begin, and who is God in the midst of this. And every time we open up God's Word, it's going to tell us a little bit more about Him because He is the object of worship. He is the one to be exalted. He's the one that points to, this, the Word points to. And today when we're looking at this message, we're going to see our aim is exactly the aim here. We're going to discover the severity of sin in rebellion, but we're also going to discover the salvation from sin through the Redeemer. And so when we do that, you may say, this is a dreadful account, because some of you read already past verse 6, or you've already read it looking ahead to today, and you may say, what can I learn from such a dreadful moment in history? Well, there's a few things I think we should note. Um, this moment, and we can't strip it away from it, many times we can, we can open up a Bible. I, I had a, had a colleague um, in one of my preaching classes. And uh, he would always get up in arms about our professor telling us that we need to pray and plan. That we should seek the Lord in what direction He is leading us, but plan ahead. And know that God can work just as much weeks to months to years down the road as He can in minutes. God is not limited because we put a longer time span. In fact, God is able to do abundantly more. If He can do much in seven days, He can certainly do much in seven weeks or whatever. But anyways, this, 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 this preacher friend and his colleague of mine in class, he says, I think that's unbiblical. I don't think that's right. I think you should seek the Word of the Lord in the moment. And he goes, what do you mean in the moment? He says, well, before I preach that day, I just open the Bible, and wherever my finger lands, that's what I preach on. And I'm like, well, honestly, that takes a lot of guts because, I mean, unless you've really studied the entire Bible and know it by heart uh, and, and have read everything there is to know about the Bible, people speaking about it, teaching about it, and have that just ready in the back of your pocket every week, you're, you could be in trouble. But the danger of that is sometimes just opening up and saying, I'm going to pull this out as if it is exclusive from the rest of the text. And there's a danger in that because the Bible is this threaded narrative that begins from Genesis through the Old Testament and into the, the New Testament. From Genesis through Revelation, it tells us the story of God. So they're not exclusive from one another. And this narrative should never be taken away from everything that has happened before, from what has preceded it. But after all those things that had happened, what we learn from this, after the people have already received the covenant, the law has already been given, they're Moses is receiving the instructions for the tabernacle, the way to worship God. It lets us know that a glorious moment does not automatically equal an ongoing glorious devotion. That, that one glorious moment does not just automatically guarantee that everything will be locked, step, glued, and turn out perfect from that moment on. It does not guarantee that. It also is absolutely amazing to see what people will do and can revert to when a message is not regularly, clearly fed into their life. Moses had been away for 40 days. I tend to wonder what had happened to the other leaders that had been given, that had heard the word of the Lord, that had known what had been passed down to them from their ancestors. Um, where are they at? The Bible tells us without vision, without revelation, without clarity, people perish. 
We also see the mind-numbing activity of the people is a relapse of patterns they've seen before. Many times it's very, very, let me put this really clearly, very easy to return to the life that you had before. Or at least what you have known before. Or at least the traditions that have been passed down to you before. It's very easy to return there. It's, even if those traditions are contrary to what God had voiced. The people here, they, they, they construct this golden calf. I think that's, by the way, why you see these Christian colleges. None of the Christian colleges have golden cows as their mascots. Probably a good reason for that. But uh, here... Here they, they build this representation and it wasn't too strangely different from what they had seen in Israel. In Israel, you had many images that had a head of a cow or some kind of cow worship. Um, kind of does remind me a little bit of the 90s uh, little phrase I saw on many t-shirts, you know, don't have a cow, man. But here, here, you see them kind of returning to some of the images. There was Hathor. Uh, this was a man represented by the head of a cow. There was Minwar. I know these sound like Pokemon characters, I know. Um, but uh, the, the, this was the sacred bull of Ra, the king, the, the sun god. He rode on this bull that was covered with gold. There was Apis, the bull of Ta. Um, this is uh, where you get the word Taurus, by the way. Uh, the creator god that was worshipped at Memphis, the one who created, they believe, the world, the, the Egyptians. And uh, this was actually a cow that was treated royally in its own place. And if you were the right level of society, you were able to only perceive this cow alive through some special windows if you were of the upper crust. And when one of these cows died, it was actually on the same level as when a pharaoh died. It was a huge moment. So here you see the people returning back to what they had before. But here's the thing. We can look back once again and say, how, how, how could they do that? Why did they do that? The people of Israel were somewhere between the deliverance moment and the promised land. And in the middle of it, they still needed guidance and direction. They still needed the Lord and they needed to trust Him and follow Him. And here's the danger. For us as believers, that's exactly where we're at. That moment between redemption and salvation and the promised land. We still need the voice of the Lord. We need to hear Him and know His Word and follow and trust. There's a lesson there just in that. But here we see what happens. This account reminds us of where we are. We too are in the wilderness. And it reminds us of what can happen if we do not listen to the voice of the Lord. What can happen? Sin. Three little letters. Really big deal. Sin can happen. Because sin... Well, we make a big deal of it as, as a church, and we should. We should make a big deal out of it. But some people look at sin. They said, "I try to lessen the word." But what is sin? It's it's rebellion. It's disobedience. It's idolatry. It's those three. Let's look at let's look at that, what sin is, and and really spell it out. And what by what happened here? Sin ultimately, verse one, is disobedience. It's what we do. It's what we fall when we do. What God tells us not to do. That's disobedience. God has told us to do this and we don't do it. Or God has told us not to do this and we do it. That's disobedience. Sin is disobedience to God's will. And sin is blatant when we do it against His revealed will. So 
When you do something that God has said not to do, it's still a sin, even if you didn't know it. So when, if you came here and you didn't know that following after other gods was a sin, or adultery is a sin, or stealing is a sin, or lying is a sin, or murder is a sin, if you didn't know it, it's, even if you were ignorant of it, you're still disobedient towards God's law. But if you know it, you're even held to further account. And these were just 40 days since the audible voice of the Lord had been heard over 600,000 men and their families from this mountain that is still in smoke and fire. So this is blatant, blatant disobedience. And it even goes against what the Israelites already knew. What did they, what did they already know? What did they already have? They, that, that God had already made benevolent promises. He was going to rescue them and, 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 and give them a land. And He was going to hold them as a special treasure, as His kingdom, as His light to the world. Um, they, they had been given bountiful provision. That God had rescued them. Uh, they had, God had demonstrated bewildering power. The, 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 the Red Sea, the plagues. God had revealed His breathtaking presence on the mountain. There it was, still all aglow. And God had spoken bare-faced proclamations. It wasn't like, oh yeah, I totally forgot He said that. Oh, did you hear that? I don't think I heard that. No, they heard it. Much as like the case of when we say, oh yeah, He did say. This helps us to make a case why this moment is such a great sin breaking such incredible guilt. The aftermath of this great sin. It's because of who had committed, the nation of Israel, this God's special people. It's because of where they committed. They're at the foot of this place that God had directed them to worship Him and know Him and hear Him. It's, it's because of how they committed it. They, they committed active, idolatrous activity. This wasn't like, oh, I made something that... You know, we may discount as an idol, and I don't know. They actually built something that says, we're going to make something to worship it. And it's because of what they had experienced. They're rebelling against goodness. They're rebelling against righteousness. They're rebelling against the restorer of their life. They're rebelling against their own redemption. And the Israelites, they already knew the laws. This is after the Ten Commandments. And in it, they break four of them. Four of them with their actions. They break not having other gods beside the Lord, not making a graven image, not carrying the name of the Lord in vain, and, and, they break the covet rule because they wanted something they didn't have and something God forbade. This is an idolatry. Now today we don't make a big deal out of people. Um, we would think it odd if we saw somebody that had a shrine and they were actually worshiping it, right? That would be an oddity for our culture. We know it happens. I know it's out there. I know people that, that have a, a, a Hinduistic worldview. They, they have shrines at times that worship. Not all, but many. I know people that live according to a Buddhism type worldview. They have shrines. And, and their worship is not worshiping of a God, but of a, of, a, of a direction, a path. 
But today we, we sometimes discount the word idolatry and being idolaters because we think we don't have idols. But an idol, as Tony Morita, a pastor in North Carolina, would say, this is anything you seek to give you what only Christ can give you, that of joy or security or peace or meaning or significance or identity or salvation, any of those things can become an idol if you seek for it to give you what only Christ can. What would these things be if we were to spell them out? Because, you know, that's generally speaking, peace and joy. What, let's... I mean, preacher, you're not going to spell out what the actual things are. Yeah, money, sex, romantic relationships, peer approval, competence and skills, security, beauty, brains, brawn, success and ambition. These things are immoral by themselves, but can be tweaked and turned into easy idols. Because we look for them to give us something that only Christ can. And here's where they go. And this moment isn't simply what God told the Israelites not to do. It's also the people speaking to God about what He won't do. Think about that as well. God had said in the first two commandments that not to have any gods and not to make any idols. And then He goes on to say that I will not let people that despise Me, that turn their backs on Me, I will not let that go unpunished. I will not let that guilty just be dissuaded. And so when the people of Israel are doing this, they're not only just saying, God, I'm doing what you told me not to, but I'm also saying, and you ain't going to do nothing about it. I don't think He'll punish us. I think He'll let us off the hook. This is how it's so dark and so deceiving. The sin that is disobedience. The funny thing is, in this moment... You know, it didn't even take somebody dangling something in front of them. You know, some, they didn't have a scapegoat, if you will. They didn't have somebody they could point to and blame and say, oh, the devil made me do it. They didn't have that. They had none of that. They said, we'll make it ourselves. They didn't have anybody to say, hey, here's an idol. We just kind of stole this from the other tribe. How about we worship this? No, this is, we'll make something ourselves. The heart will always seek something to worship. And if its worship is not of the Lord, the heart becomes an idol factory. Secondly, sin is not only disobedience, it's distrust. When we fall, we fall when we do not trust God to know what He's doing. To say, God, I know that You know what You're doing. Yeah, that's what it is. Not trusting God in itself is a sin. And it leads to all the other sins that we can come up with. All the other things that were mentioned in the Ten Commandments. All the things that were spelled out as specifics in the law. That's what they lead to. And the Israelites here, they show their distrust because they're not willing to wait for God's instructions on Moses from, to Moses. Which, in the moment, He is giving. It's a crazy moment. Moses is right there giving what it means to worship God in a holy way. At that moment, in that time, is when they're doing this. It's nuts. It's bewildering. I think we do that too. God says, this is what it means to worship me. I'm like, I don't know if I can trust you that far. You're asking me to do this as your follower, as someone who has received your grace, who has received the grace that was demonstrated on the cross. I don't know if I can trust you in that. Oh, I, I need it now. I've got to have an answer now. My prayer is now. I need the answer now. 
And maybe sometimes we do need the answer now. But here it is. And, and they, they were right where they, God wanted them to be, and they were going to be there for the next two years as they built the tabernacle and prepared to move on to the promised land. But here they're displaying impatience with God. They're unwilling to trust His timing and His will. They're displaying distrust of Moses. In fact, with Moses, they, they, because their trust in God is distorted, they actually misdirect their trust or lack of trust on Moses. Because they're saying, well, Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. And he was our leader, and he's the one that did all this. Wrong problem. You just put too much responsibility on Moses, gave him too much credit. It was God who delivered. Moses was just the person that spoke. If God had not been there, it would not have happened. Moses would have been just a talking head. Second, they had too little respect for him. That, ah, he just abandoned us. We don't know what's happened to him. He's not coming back. Why would he? We're jerks. And here they're trusting God. He's messed up. See, we fall when we fail to trust God that He knows what He's doing and we try to work things out on our own. Try to manipulate the, the moment. We're often tempted to, to be impatient and distrust God because we want God to heal now. We want God to help now. We want God to bring spiritual change now. We want God to lead us out of the wilderness now. <laughs> Honestly, um, be careful praying that because once again, we're all somewhere between the deliverance and the promised land. You want God to take you out of the wilderness now? Just, okay, uh, that's the one way out. Uh, the, the ultimate deliverance from that is, you know, not being here anymore. Um, for God to change, and that wouldn't be a bad thing, by the way. I mean, heaven's a great place. Um, the greatest, but better than here. But there you go. I got to stop. Because I can chase those rabbits. We want God to change our lives and the lives of others now. Instead of trusting that, God, this is where you want me in this moment. But help me not be so sedated that I don't listen to where you're leading. But help me not be so discontent that I miss what's meant to be learned now. Sin is disobedience. Sin is distrust. Sin is also distortion. We fall when we do things our way rather than His way. You see, sin isn't just about a lack of trusting God's timing or rebellion. It's a distrust of the way He does things altogether. It distorts it. It twists what God intends for good and for His glory. And we try to bend it to our will to say, I want to make it palpable for me. I want to make it fit me. This is the, the problem when people try to say, Alright, I have a theory about the way life should be. Now let me just get some verses of the Bible to sprinkle around it to make me feel good that God should bless that. Instead of saying, let me know God through His Word and help it shape me. There is a difference of viewpoint. We must be careful not to fall into the one that says, let me just try to think my way and add God's blessing to it and manipulate it. Let's find God's way and let it change us. Israelites wanted it their way instead of God's way. Verses 2-4, through four, they, He says, Take off the rings that are on your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to Me. And so all the people took off the gold rings that were on the ears and they brought them to Aaron. And He took the gold from them and fastened them in an engraving tool and made it into a calf. And He says, These are your gods. These are the ones who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We just made it right here on the spot. But it had total involvement over the last four months. See how distortion that is? 
redemption, when we know redemption, it's about bringing redeemed worshiping to the Redeemer in a redemptive way. It, it has the Gospel sprinkled all over it. It cannot escape from what the Gospel has done. And here, the people learn some hard lessons. This animal was created to do song and dance and all this stuff around and to make them feel good about themselves. And it led to all kinds of other living. It was uh, coated in gold to be shiny and expressive. And the Israelites, they, they tried to become like what they were worshiping. This is what Psalm 115 tells us. These idols of, that are created by hands, they, all they are are things that don't have, that have mouths but can't speak, that have eyes but can't see, that have ears but can't hear, have hands but can't feel. They're nothing. They can accomplish nothing. And, and those who make them become like them. And so what the Israelites are doing, they've made something that is really nothing and then they, it leads them to do something that really adds up to nothing. It does not bring value or glory or goodness to the kingdom of God, no matter how flashy it may be. In fact, it distorts it. You see, when God speaks in His redemptive way, it preserves His majesty. It won't be declined. It won't be defamed. It presents His mercy of the gospel. It preaches His message so that people will know redemption. But doing things our own way and distorting God's way is something that translates to what we see today. What we want to do with our own style. We don't want to care what God's language is. We want our own type of priest. We don't care what God says about offering. We want our own type of altar. We don't care what God says about giving. We want our own type of sacrifices. We don't care what God says about worshiping Him alone. We want our own special deity that makes us feel good. We don't want... We know what God says about the way. But I would rather have not the way, but the do it myself. It turns into something that's idolatrous. It turns into something immoral. It turns to something insulting. By the way, the getting up and partying, this is going to be uncomfortable, but other versions, they present it pretty clear, and sometimes we get like, ooh, I can't believe, it. I can't believe that word's there. But it says they, they created this massive, lustful activity of multiple partners. This is what's going on. This is not so they just like, oh, they just went and they hung up some streamers. That's what it means. No, no, they were getting just incredibly dark. A pastor, professor, that some agree with, some don't, but, you know, depending on their, he, yeah, his name's R.C. Sproul. He, he, he had this one quote that I think is really good. I don't agree with everything he said, but I do believe that this is right on about this area. It says, the cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun or call them to judgment. This is what a religion looks like designed by men, practiced by men, and was ultimately useless for men. Wow. 
compared to what God brings for us to see who He is. When God brings us together, He incorporates a worship that is about prayer, communicating with Him in a way that realizes He exists and knows that He answers those who pray to Him. It talks about praise as we declare God for His holiness. It talks about preaching as we speak about what God has done to make a way where there was no way. It talks about confession where we confess that we need Him to lead us and we need Him to redeem us. It speaks about giving and saying this is what it means to serve out of a grateful heart. And it talks about celebration when we see God rescue another. This is what true corporate worship should be about. And so the, or, the, the, the issue is, is not just about the stupid golden cow. It's about sin and the severity of it. It shows us that sin is disobedience and sin is distrust and it's, and it's distortion. And sin, as we see, as we look at all these things, man, how devious it is. Because we fall when we do what is popular instead of what is right. Verse 5 eight, it shows how devious it could be. And that the very older brother, Aaron, the one that God had, had called to be Moses' spokesperson in the beginning of presenting to Pharaoh, the one who had seen these miraculous activities, the one who had held up Moses' staff whenever he was weak, that same Aaron, the one who had become the high priest, And I don't know why God redeemed him, but he shows grace in ways we don't understand and I'm thankful for because I don't know why God redeemed me. But he shows grace in ways that I don't understand. But looking at Aaron and her, and where were the rest of the elders? They didn't defend God. They didn't defend their position or God's. They didn't provide godly leadership to the people in this moment. They didn't pray about the situation. They said, okay, just take off the earrings. They didn't consult one another. They didn't lead the people in true worship. And they didn't teach sound theology. They were just worried about what would happen if they said no. What would happen if we refused? They were more worried about their near immediate future than they were about God's reputation. And in doing so, they failed because they wanted to see and do what was popular in the moment rather than what was right. That's how devious God is. It plays on that. What's popular for the moment. And it plays on that because it depends on our spiritual amnesia. Where we forget who God is and what God has done and what God has said. We forget that there's a God who just spoke. We forget there's a God whose glory was on the mountain on display. We forget there was a God who gave them the gold in the first place. Who were these Israelites before they were ever redeemed? Slaves. They owned nothing. They had nothing. They were discounted as nothing by the people. And yet when they left, God put favor on them to collect gold and gifts from the people as they were departing. Yes, take this, please. Redeem us. Leave us. Let the Lord have rest upon our land. So the very gold that they distorted was actually a gift of God in the first place to them. And they forgot. They forgot who God was, what God had seen. And it led to this disastrous moment where 3,000 people were killed. You may say, 3,000 people, yeah, sin is disastrous, sin has consequences. 3,000 were killed. When Moses comes back down off the mountain, 
He calls for the Levites. He calls for a repentance. And apparently there were some that says, well, let's know what Moses has to say. And 3,000 men are killed actively practicing what they were doing. This amounts to 0.05% of the 600,000 men that were there, um, give or take a percentage. That doesn't mean anything. It's still horrible what happened. But there were some who lived through the tribulation. There were some who saw the act of God's grace. They knew there would be consequences, but they, they did. But we see some things here that teach us about the fact that all these things about sin are true. But here's the great news. Sin is disastrous only if you don't have a deliverer. Because we have a deliverer, yes, sin is disobedience and we should never partake in it. Sin is distrust and it leads us away from the Lord. Sin is distortion and it twists what God said. And sin is devious. It can move us to try to capture a moment instead of following God forever. But God provides a deliverer in the middle of our disaster. Here, that, that, that person that is used in the middle to be that mediator is Moses. He prays for the people. He calls the people to repent. He seeks them to flee from the sin and go to their, their Redeemer and, and calls for reconciliation. Until next week, we're going to be looking at this intercession moment that Moses has with the Lord after this moment. And how God works miraculously to demonstrate His grace. But in the middle of that, it reminds us of what we are to do. If sin is this, what are we to do as the redeemed people? We must pray. Never doubt the power that God has made available in prayer. Because in prayer, we're appealing to God's character and faithfulness. In prayer, we're seeking the will of God and not our own selfish desire. In prayer, we're believing God, the Lord, the Redeemer answers. But not only just pray about it and say, all right, I prayed, but repent. It's disastrous when we say, God, I want to pray about this. I want to pray about this. But let me just keep doing this. Please, please. No, repent. Do not follow your own way. For Moses, he had to confront the rebellion. That's why we must call people who are the redeemed. Don't try to call lost people to follow God's law. Call lost people to see God's message of rescue. And once they experience His grace upon their life, then show them what it is to live as the redeemed people. But as the redeemed, when we talk about our brothers and sisters, we must confront rebellion. And we must refuse to shift blame or minimize sin whenever it's pointed out in our life. This is what Aaron did. We must join with others in seeking the Lord's will, even if it means walking through the consequences. But in that grace, flee from sin and flee to the Savior. Cling to the cross. Look to Jesus. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim. The light of His glory and grace that forgives and cleanses from all unrighteousness. And find a life of reconciliation. The gospel redeems not just the heart, it redeems the whole. Seek the Lord and see the gospel. See God's character on display. See the offense of sin. See the sufficiency of Christ who is the Savior to whom we flee. See your personal response in it. 
and see how eternity has shifted and life is transformed. Don't, don't, don't. Be a person who says, I'm redeemed of the Lord. And then goes on living a life of insubordination to that Redeemer. Say, God, I see my insufficiency. Thank you for redemption and thank you for drawing me back to you. Thank you that today I even have a breath in my lungs and a heartbeat in my chest and ears to hear, eyes to see. A moment once again to return to you that you have not cut me off. That today was a day of grace. That I may have a chance to fall on my knees, to pray, repent, flee, and be reconciled to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, today, I know this is a hard message. It's not even one I wanted to preach. But nevertheless, it's your word. It's a moment that happened. It's something that teaches us about you. It's something that teaches us that we, teaches all of us something that we need to learn. So God, in this moment when we have the ability to respond to you, help us not discount it. Help us not check the watch or anything else to see where we are in our day as if we have to move on to something else. Let us be patient and trust you and listen to you follow you and not try to distort your word or or let the deceptions lead us elsewhere god show us the disaster you saved us from and how we glory in the deliverer that you provided and may we all have this moment of praise and refreshment and reconciliation with you god almighty in your name we pray amen and as you keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. This moment, let it be a time where you have the ability to respond to God. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know where you are. I can't look into your mind and read it. I don't know what the weights of your heart or the flesh are. But God does. And in this moment, I believe God does bring about conviction because He convicts me. In the middle of even preaching this, I, I am convicted, but in that moment of conviction, it points me towards the grace that's found in Jesus. And the ability to, to come before Him and follow in a new way of life. So if that's what's weighing in this room, what's weighing on your life right now, I, I just I encourage you, don't just stay where you are. Don't tune it out. Follow the leading of the Lord in His grace. I'm going to be here at the front. If you need someone to talk to about your next step with the Lord, whether it be the first step of trusting in Him for salvation or some other decision, I, I am here and I want to help you. But the most important decision you make now is following where God would lead you. Do that and you will not be led astray.